Dear Father, thank you, Father, for reminders in our everyday life of the truth of what we read in Scripture. And how, how marvelous is it, Father, that you come with that sense of, of humor that you have, Father, that you would, uh, you would remind us of truth like this, that you would explain to us things in your word and then turn right around and give us object lessons in our everyday life so that we could understand these things. I pray, Father, that what we learn today would be useful to you in another way like that for each of us. That there is truth in this man's life, in Gideon's life, that is more than just for his sake. It's truth concerning how we all live at times. And so, Father, as we see his response and your response to him and, and the circumstances as they play out, I, I pray, Father, you'd let us see ourselves in this story as it is appropriate. That we would see opportunity in where we can follow better and listen better. That we can be one who would... Avoid the mistakes that this man makes while emulating the courage that he shows at times. And Lord, let us uh, preach to ourselves before we think of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, remember, we preached out of Judges the need to look at your circumstances, particularly when you're in a time of trial of one kind or another, to look at them with that questioning attitude of what is God trying to do in those moments, as opposed to simply thinking about your own concerns and being woe is me in those moments. We looked at that situation in Israel's case. Well, last week after we left here, went to a place here locally for uh, stopped around lunchtime. And when I got in the car and left and went home and I got home and I discovered I did not have in my wallet my ID, my driver's license. It had fallen out. If you see my wallet, you can see how that's possible. It's sort of loosely in my wallet. Anyway, so I find out it's not with me, and I think, oh, great. You know how that is when you lose your license? First of all, you think about where is it, and then you realize, I'm going to have to go down to the DMV, and I'd rather have my teeth pulled out than go down and stand in the DMV to get another license. And anyway, I'm just in a bad mood. And, you know, we call the place. No, they don't, they don't see it. It's not there. Okay. So then I'm thinking, oh, great, there goes my Monday. And my wife says, you know, honey, somebody's going to find it and just mail it back to you. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure they will. Sure they will. And I'm just ticked off. And then I get an email the next morning from a lady who says, I have your license. And I'm thinking, how did you get my email? Well, there is one advantage to having some notoriety and being someone you can easily Google. Because she saw my name and address on the license, and she Googled my name, and I pop right up, of course, at the top of the list. And she looked at my face and said, yeah, that's the same guy. So, And her story was pretty funny. She didn't live in Austin either. She was driving from Houston to Brownwood, which is way northwest of here. And she stopped at the same place just halfway on her trip. And as she's walking out, she sees the license under her tire. Now, how do you do that? I don't know. And she picked it up. So she mailed it back to me, and I have it now. But as it turned out, she was introduced to the ministry through this. <laughs> turned out she was a Christian woman, and she's introduced to the ministry because she had to Google it. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I should have been asking the question, what was God going to do by making my license go lost for a couple of days, right? You know, it's funny, you have to preach to yourself before you can preach to other people. And I didn't pay attention to that. My wife was right in this case that it got mailed back. I honestly believe that the main reason that whole thing happened was so that my wife would have one more opportunity to be right. Because she lives for those opportunities. And, and she gets far too many of them as far as I'm concerned. So let that be a lesson to you. See, I went to all that trouble just to give you the proof point of what I was preaching last week. All right. Enough stories. We are in chapter 6. So speaking of last week, we introduced Gideon, the fourth judge in the book of Judges. And this week will be the week we really start to get to know this man personally. And as we do that, I'm going to ask that we continue to remember the times and the circumstances in which this gentleman lived. Remember, this is a time in which the people of Israel are in trouble. This is a time in which 
the men of the culture are weak. The women of the culture are forced to compensate in some ways. And generally speaking, the people of Israel are increasingly prone to idol worship, and that's fracturing the society. They're doing what is right in their own eyes. We've heard this before. And as we look at Gideon, his nature, his character, will reflect all of these aspects of Jewish society, particularly as it applies to men, of course. We're going to see that he lacks self-confidence. He has trouble recognizing the voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord, because he's unfamiliar with it. He needs reassurance at times. And in spite of all of these characteristics, all these flaws, the Lord is going to patiently work with him, just like he does with all of us, because that's what the Lord has to work with in this culture. So let's rejoin Gideon. We do it as we left off last week. This is the scene in which Gideon is being met by the angel of the Lord, appearing as if he were a man, as if he were a young man. And he is meeting Gideon as he's threshing in the wine press, which we said last week was not the normal location. And now Gideon, as he has talked with this angel of the Lord, he has begun to suspect that he's talking to someone more than just an ordinary man. And now he goes to the next step for himself in understanding who this person is. Verse 16, the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you. And bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Well, then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the yoke and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meats and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it the Lord is peace to this day. It is still an Ophrah of the Abiezrites. And after hearing that this man that he'd been talking to all this time will be with him in battle, as he said, as he promised, well, that causes Gideon to begin to think twice about who am I talking to here? This guy is obviously someone special. And so Gideon then goes to the next step and he asks for a sign. What he means is, I want some evidence that I'm actually talking to the man I think I'm talking to, which is to say, I think I'm talking to God. But you don't look like God, so maybe you could help me with this a little. Show me your God. And so the next thing he tells this guest to do is stay put. I'm going to go prepare a meal for you. Now, he uses the word offering there. I'm going to give you an offering. But the word in Hebrew for offering can also just mean a gift or a tribute. So what Gideon is saying is I'm going to prepare a meal here as a tribute to you, as a thanks offering to you. And it's going to take me some time. I don't want you to disappear while I'm off doing this to which the angel agrees. And then he goes about several hours of work to do that. He has to go get a young goat, prepare the goat for dinner. He makes a large quantity, and Ephaph is a large quantity of, of unleavened bread, and it's unleavened because he's hurrying. He doesn't have time for it to rise. And then, after he gets the goat ready and the bread ready, he boils the goat in water, obviously, and he creates this broth after he's done boiling the goat. So he brings the goat, the bread, and a pot of broth as part of this meal. 
Now, rather than eat the meal, what the angel of the Lord tells him to do is to set this meat and the bread on a large rock, which effectively becomes an impromptu altar. And then he says, take the pot of broth and pour it out. I think by the context, what he implies by that is to pour it on the meat, pour it on the bread, put it all on the rock. So now you have this soggy offering. And at that point, the man, who we know to be the angel of the Lord, takes his staff, as you heard, touches it, and the whole thing goes up in flames. It reminds us a little of 1 Kings 18, where you see Elijah on the Mount Carmel experience. But anyway, this is a moment in which all of this has been now taken up in fire, consumed entirely as a sacrifice to the Lord. And at that very moment, the angel of the Lord disappears, just vanishes right there and then. So between the burning of the soggy sacrifice and the instantaneous disappearance of this man, quote, man, Gideon gets his sign. He sees what he wanted to see. At that moment, he understands that was no ordinary man. And in fact, as you see in the text, Gideon instantly becomes fearful of the fact that he just witnessed the angel of the Lord face to face because he knows that seeing the angel of the Lord, seeing the Lord in general should bring about death or so he thought. But then the Lord speaks to Gideon and reassures him and says, no, 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 this is not going to happen. Why? Because he didn't see the glory of the Lord. It's not merely that you would see some manifestation of God that you would die. The scriptures are very clear. You see the face of God. That is to say, you see the full glory of God. And if you were to do that, the Bible says you would die for no man can see God's glory like that and live. And therefore, a theophany, which is what we see here, any kind of physical manifestation of God's presence, like when the dove descended on Jesus or when the fire burned for Moses, those are theophanies. Theophanies are not a threat to our existence, for that is not the glory of God. That is simply a physical representation of God. And so God says to Gideon, don't worry, you're not going to die. And instead, Gideon now goes from fear to worship. He builds an altar for another sacrifice and he names this location Yahweh Shalom, which is the Lord is peace. Gideon's request for a sign may sound similar to you and I, to things we've read elsewhere in the Bible. For example, in the New Testament, you remember times when Jesus was walking in the Galilee and he would encounter one group or another who would say, show us a sign that tells us you are who you are. It sounds similar, doesn't it? Seems like very much the same set of circumstances. In most cases, though, in the New Testament, the Lord would refuse to grant such a sign to people who asked for it. For example, do you remember in Matthew 12, verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And then in verse 39, Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. So in that case, back in... Matthew's gospel, you have the religious leaders of Israel saying to Jesus, teacher, we want a sign. And what they mean is more or less the same thing Gideon means. We hear what you're saying, but we're not sure we believe it. We need you to prove it. We need you to show some sign. But in the case of Gideon, the Lord concedes to the sign, while in this case he refuses. In the case of Matthew's gospel, he refused to give a sign. Why the difference? Well, in the Pharisees' case, Jesus, first of all, had already performed miracles for them. This is not the first time he had ever considered making a claim, and it's not the first time he had ever been asked to do a sign. He has been doing this from time to time in the Galilee. In fact, he was renowned in the Galilee for being a man who was walking around healing and performing miraculous signs. So, first of all, they've had signs. But secondly, Jesus' identity was clearly known and his qualifications to be Messiah were easy to verify if these men were at all interested in knowing the truth. 
He came from the right city and from the right family, and he has all the other attributes of the scriptures required in order to be considered the Messiah. So once again, if these men were truly interested in validating his identity, it was not something they had much difficulty doing, but they didn't bother. So Jesus knew that even though he had performed signs, that his message was in keeping with Scripture, and his person, his existence was consistent with what Scripture said. Despite all of that, these men were not believing in him. Therefore, any additional sign he did for them would have likewise been rejected. In fact, you notice he says, the only sign you're going to see from me at this point is the sign of Jonah, which is to say the sign of resurrection, of being dead three days and coming back to life. Which, of course, he did perform. And what was the response of the religious leaders once that sign was given? That most impressive of all signs. They rejected it anyway. Friends, it's self-evident that there was not a sign possible that was going to penetrate the unbelieving heart of these men. And that is why Jesus said, I'm not going to play this game with you. God does not condescend to meet our unbelief. Now, what about Gideon? Well, Gideon's request is very different, and all the circumstances of his moment demonstrate that. He was inclined to accept the words of the angel of the Lord, and everything he does tells us that. First, he asked the angel of the Lord to stay put. Why? Because he needed time to go honor his guest. Well, the Pharisees never gave Jesus even a moment of honor in any of their interactions. And then Gideon prepares this lavish meal for his guest. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, whenever they tried to have a meal with Jesus, like Simon the Pharisee at one point, the whole idea of the meal is a ruse just to try to trap or trick Jesus in the process. Thirdly, when Jesus does perform this sign, the angel of the Lord, Gideon is quick to respond in faith. And in fact, he shows a fear of the Lord as a result. What happens when the Pharisees see Jesus perform miraculous signs that they can't explain away? They credit it to Satan. And then lastly, Gideon's fear of the Lord turns to worship, whereas the Pharisees, they openly mocked, hated and conspired against Jesus as his power and authority grew among the people. So you see this divergence clearly evident in the two reactions. And Jesus, knowing their hearts even in advance of his sign, gave signs to the one for whom it would encourage faith and withheld signs from those he knew were not persuaded by them. God has that insight. Now, having said all of that, Gideon's need for a sign was an indication of his spiritual weakness. It is not a virtue of the believer that they demand signs of God. Scripture never looks positively at a demand of a sign from God. Even when signs are granted on occasion in Scripture to bolster weak faith, as is the case here, those concessions, as God allows, are not to the praise of the individual. Never in Scripture do you see that. In fact, consider one of the most famous examples of all Scripture, and that is the case of the Apostle Thomas. In John 20, 24, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with the other apostles when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, well, unless I see in his hands the imprints of the nails and put my fingers into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and see it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Well, blessed are they who do not see and yet have believed. 
We even say doubting Thomas as a result of this story, right? Thomas's requirement of a sign from Jesus before he would believe what the disciples told him, which is that Jesus had been resurrected. Before he would believe that, he said, I have to see it for myself. In fact, I have to go a step further. I got to see the proof that he died before I'll believe that he's been resurrected. That is not reflected in Scripture as a strength for Thomas. Jesus even rebukes him here. And Paul later in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that seeking a sign in place of simply believing in his word, he says that is indicative of the unbelieving world. That's what unbelievers do as a pattern. Doubt the word of God, demand signs in place of truth. So when a believer requires signs and wonders in order to strengthen his or her relationship with the Lord, instead of relying on the word of God exclusively, that person is showing an indication of spiritual immaturity. Not sophistication, but immaturity. Signs and wonders are spiritual crutches. I compare them to spiritual cotton candy. It looks substantial when you look at it. It excites us. But once you take it in, it evaporates. And you quickly come to recognize it is empty. But here's the problem. Once you get a taste for it, you keep going back for more, despite the fact that there's no nutrition in it. That's the consequence of seeking for signs and wonders of whatever form as a means of bolstering your faith in God, of feeling connected to God, of of sensing his presence in your life. If that's what you depend on in place of a foundational trust in the word of God and that alone, then you are in this unhealthy cycle of dependence on crutches. Gideon's need for a sign is a measure for us of his spiritual weakness, and it is an indication that he was unaccustomed to hearing the voice of God, unaccustomed to the word of God in his own day. And we're going to see this, by the way, throughout the story of Gideon. This is not the only time. Now, obviously, Gideon did not get visits from the angel of the Lord every day, nor do we, nor does anyone. That's not the way God works. So we're not saying that he should have been accustomed to it or he should have been expecting it. That's not the point. But all Israel, including Gideon, did have the law to meditate on. They did know the word of God for what had been recorded up to that point. But it would seem as though he was not accustomed to hearing the voice of the Lord, was not accustomed to what it sounds like when the Lord speaks to him. Because otherwise, as the angel of the Lord appears and began to speak to him, you would expect him to have recognized it, much in the way Moses did, much in the way Abraham did. But Gideon, Gideon can't be sure of anything. Believers who are unfamiliar with the Lord's word are usually unprepared to hear the Lord when the Lord comes into their life in some fashion and speaks to them in whatever manner. Remember, Jesus said in John's gospel that the sheep of the shepherd know the shepherd's voice and hear his voice. And he's stating a spiritual principle that's true even for us now, that the people of God come to know the Lord by his word so that when he calls, we know it. When he speaks, we hear him. And I don't mean necessarily audibly. I'm talking about instinctively. Believers who stray from the Lord, however, will have difficulty knowing his call when it comes. I often feel questions from people who will say, Steve, how do you know when the Lord is speaking to you? How do you know when he's talking to you? How do you, how do you recognize him when he's calling? People talk all the time about the Lord told me to do this or told me to do that. And I never seem to hear that. I never seem to know what he's telling me. I wouldn't even know if it happened. I've never experienced it. How does that happen, Steve? Well, the question is so hard to answer because this is not something you just switch on when you feel like it. It never works that way. You are either practiced at listening to the Lord by study of his word, by prayer, by a general sensitivity to the movement of the spirit in your life, or you aren't. And if you aren't, you're going to miss his voice at times. 
The only solution, the only way to get to that point where you say, gee, I know what it feels like to hear from the Lord, is to spend time in the disciplines of the faith that build your spiritual maturity so that you can hear him. And those disciplines are listening to the word that's been given in a prayerful way and considering your actions in light of your circumstances as God informs them. I think of the example I gave you earlier of, the, of my losing the license. You know, the, there's a point in which you begin to ask those questions purely out of experience through working with God in his word and seeing how he works in the lives of his people. Or, or you're not practiced in that, and life just appears to be a random set of events that come your way, some good, some bad, and we all have to make the best of it. A sort of fatalistic mindset. Gideon is the man God has chosen to lead Israel out of this cycle of sin. But God has a man here in Gideon who has difficulty hearing the Lord in confidence. He has difficulty recognizing his voice. He has difficulty mustering the courage to follow. And this tells you something about how far the culture of Israel has gone south in this period of history. Even Israel's heroes are struggling to hear the Lord, to say nothing of the average man. So they depend on spiritual crutches, in this case, signs. So now look what Gideon does. Even though he has heard, he now goes forward in action that still reflects fear and doubt. Look in verse 25. Now, on the same night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner. And take a second bowl and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. So this is the same day the Lord's done all the stuff we've read so far on this very same day that he appeared and he had the meal and the sacrifice. That same night, the Lord gives Gideon his first mission. Let's get started. No need to wait. First night, your mission begins with a raid against a Midianite high place. That is to say a false altar. And in this case, it's the altar of his own father. Gideon's own father has an altar to Baal with an Asherah pole standing next to it. So he's told, take a team of two bulls, go up to there, rope it around the altar that's there, and use the bulls to knock the whole thing down. And then after it's down, take the Asherah pole, cut it down, and use that wood to fire up a sacrifice to me using a new altar. And the symbolism of this whole action is so clear. Baal is a god that comes in the form of a bull. Baal is a big bull god. So you have bull god's altar being torn down by a pair of bulls. And then Asherah poles, Asherah was a female goddess of fertility, and she was represented by taking young trees and carving them into a pole and setting them up. So then the tree goddess of life is being burned up in service to the living God. So the imagery is designed to reflect the impotence of these false gods in the face of the true power of the living God. So as for Gideon, what this means for him personally is it's an act on his part to testify that he's breaking from his father's idol worship and he's aligning himself with the God of Israel. Just in the same way that Joshua declared back in the book of Joshua, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That's the statement that's being made by these actions. Also reminds me of the moment of Moses. Remember right after Moses gets commissioned, we had the the perfectly connected reading this morning out of Exodus 4 where Moses is saying, "Ah, I can't do it, I can't talk, Don't, don't send me, I'm too weak, you got somebody else. And God's saying, nope, it's you. Right after that scene, 
God stops him and says, oh, by the way, small detail, you haven't circumcised your son yet. Let's get that taken care of before you run off and serve me. Before you tell Pharaoh that he needs to do the right thing, let's get you in line with the word. That's what's happening here. Gideon needs to get his own family in order. Now, look at what Gideon does. He undertakes the mission. Okay, that much we give him credit for. But look at how fear is still dominating his own walk. He takes men from his own household and he goes out under cover of darkness, we're told, because he's so afraid of his father's household and the men of the city in what will happen to him if he tears down this altar. What would they do? What in the world are they going to do to Gideon when they discover him taking down the altar? I mean, we can only imagine the horror of what they're going to manage to do against Gideon, right? Well, what would have happened if he had gone out during the day and done it? Well, maybe the men of the city would have seen it happening. Maybe they would have charged up the hill to stop him. And when they get there, what do we suppose is going to happen next? Well, we don't know for sure, but given that God has asked Gideon to do this very thing, can we not safely assume that the Lord has a plan for how he's going to defend Gideon in the midst of that circumstance? The point is, Gideon had no reason to doubt the strength of the Lord if he's going to obey him at all. You either don't believe that this man, this visitor is God, and if you don't believe him, you wouldn't do anything, he says. Or you do believe he is truly God, in which case, who cares what a bunch of men think? You can't have it both ways unless you're so unaccustomed to working with the Lord that you don't have this proper concept of God's sovereignty. His fear resulted in him robbing the Lord of a chance to receive glory in daylight. If he serves the Lord in strength, he goes out in the daylight when the whole of the city and all around can see this event take place and then see the following events, see the people try to object, see the Lord rescue Gideon, see the strength of the Lord in the face of this circumstance. All of this is on display, which is the whole point. But instead, what does he do? He goes and does it at night where no one can see it, where the Lord's glory is being shadowed, as it were. Friends, that's what happens when you obey in the shadows, so to speak. When you hesitate to speak up for your faith in some period in which people are watching or you try to blend in with the crowd whenever persecution is threatened because you don't want to stand out, because you don't want to rub people the wrong way, because you're a little afraid of what's going to follow next. Friends, you're failing to fulfill your very purpose in your calling in the first place if you get along with the culture in the meantime. There's no such thing as serving God and getting along with the culture. Those are always mutually exclusive positions. If you concede to the culture, you have turned your back on God at some level. Inevitably. Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The whole point is to be seen in the good sense. Now, look at the folly of his fear, because, friends, daylight eventually comes. He may have torn it down at night, but it doesn't stay night forever. Look at verse 28. But the men of the city arose early in the morning and behold, the altar of Baal was torn down and the Asherah which was beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. They said to one another, who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, well, bring out your son that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, 
Will you contend for Baal or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, we'll let him contend for himself because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he named him Drubbable. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he had torn down his altar. So look what happens the next morning. The men of the city, they see exactly what Gideon has done, of course. They see that there's a new altar and they're not pleased to find their idol altar gone. These are not Midianites. These are Jews. These are Jewish men. Look how corrupt Jewish society is. They're so upset that Baal's altar is gone and Yahweh's altar has been set up. Okay, that shows you something about the culture, right? Then word gets around it's Joash's son that's responsible. So then they demand that Joash deliver his son to death. And look what Joash does. Joash defends his son. He says, anyone who wants to defend Baal will be put to death. In other words, he's saying, you can have my son over your dead body. That's what he's saying. And then he smartly says, well, and by the way, why is anyone here interested in defending Baal over this fallen altar anyway? Let Baal defend himself. I mean, after all, if Baal really is a god with real power, worth worshiping for that matter, then surely he can defend himself, right? On the other hand, if he can't defend himself, what kind of god is he? That's what he's implying. What it would appear to say is that Joash has not only come to the defense of his son, but in the course of these events has also come to re-emerge as a Yahweh worshiper, to re-establish himself on the right side of this issue, and now he's defending God as well. And he renames his son in that interesting way, he says, my son is now one who contends with Baal. Gideon's first little mission teaches us a couple of really important lessons. First, the defeat of Midian, the defeat of the Midianites, it has to begin with a returning to Yahweh. Israel was in this predicament because they had been worshiping idols. That's why God put them under the persecution of the Midianites. So if God's going to remove the Midianites, then it stands to reason they cannot continue to worship the idols that put them into this situation in the first place. They're going to have to start worshiping Yahweh before God is willing to take the yoke off their necks. So before the Lord frees them, he says, you've got to step back from the idols. And before they can build a relationship with the true God, they've got to get rid of the altars they have to the false gods and set up the proper altars to Yahweh. God is a jealous God, he says in Scripture. He's not going to share his people with anyone. Secondly, when the time does come for God's people to turn from their sin and from disobedience, those who lead them in that endeavor have to begin that process in their own homes. Gideon could not expect to lead God's people out of darkness until his own family had come into the light. So it starts at home. Friends, that's the reason why the New Testament has all these requirements about those who lead us in the church having certain character and certain testimony. It's because you can't expect that you're going to make it to where God is taking us, spiritually speaking, if we're being led by men and women who don't make the trip themselves. You have to be led by people who are an example in that respect. Then lastly, you have to go out in the confidence that the Lord is going to win the battles that inevitably will come when you begin to take a stand for him in a culture. Gideon had nothing to fear. And friends, that next morning's experience is proof that he didn't have to do it at night. Because everything he was worried about people seeing, they saw the next day anyway. All the reaction that he was concerned about them having, they had the next morning anyway. And the fear that he might be attacked for it was still there the next morning. But you see what happened. If God could use Gideon's father to defend him in the next morning, he could have defended him if he had torn it down in the middle of the daylight. By operating under fear of darkness, though, he lost the opportunity to give the Lord the platform that he expected 
to receive the glory he deserved. And then look at 33 through 40. This is the the next moment following from this scene, and it's the one we're most familiar with often when we hear the name Gideon. Verse 33. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves, and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abazurites were called together to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they also were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me, as you have spoken... Behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece and let there be dew on all the ground. God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece and dew was on all the ground. Now, most people have heard this story in some form of Gideon's fleeces. Notice it begins here with the assembling of a huge number of Midianites They're preparing to enter the land. They've crossed over the Jordan. They're in the Jezreel Valley, the northwest corner of of present-day Israel. Big open area there, plenty of room to gather, lots of people. This is the pattern that the Midianites have followed for years. These seven years we've heard about when they come in and they raid the land, this is how it happens. They mass themselves. They walk over the Jordan River. They get all ready to come in, and they just wipe through the towns of Israel like like a big locust horde, and they just take everything they want. And how are they able to do that? Well, you'll learn later in chapter 8, that there are 135,000 people in this Midianite army. 135,000 men on camels coming down through the whole of Israel, taking everything they want. Now you understand why the people of Israel could never have stopped them on their own. But the Lord clothes Gideon here. The word in Hebrew, when it says the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, literally in Hebrew it means he clothed Gideon with the spirit. The spirit comes upon Gideon as a, a way of triggering in Gideon this awareness of this knowledge that God has spoken and that what he has said is you're going to defeat this army and you're going to get men within Israel to help you. Go for it, Gideon. And you notice as Gideon is talking to the Lord, Gideon keeps saying over and over again, as you have spoken, as you have spoken, I want you to remember that. Gideon was not unaware of what he'd been told. Gideon was not uncertain about what the instructions were. Gideon's heard from the Lord clearly by way of his spirit. And he begins to act. He blows the trumpet. This is a signal for troops to assemble. Word goes out by messenger. He gets early responses from a family of Benjamites. The name there is a Benjamite name. Later, he gets responses from the other tribes in the surrounding area of the Jezreel Valley. So he's getting the response. So look what's happened. God has given him insight. He's blown a horn. I mean, think about how little he's really done. He's just sent out some messengers. Who would like to engage in a battle against 135,000 hardened military warriors on camels? Anybody? And he's got positive response looking at this objectively. You've heard from the Lord. You've acted. And there's been immediate response that would confirm for you that the Lord's at work in supernatural ways. Never mind the fact that you've already seen the sacrifice burned up. Never mind the fact that you've talked to the Lord personally, as the angel of the Lord said. All of this is there, too, right? He's hearing and watching all of this happen. And then he gets the instructions to go out. What does he do? He says, you know what, God? I, let me just 
just real quick, check for a second. He says, I know what you've told me. I've heard it all. But just to be double sure that you're telling me the truth, keep in mind, he did not say here, I want to make sure I've heard you correctly. That's not what he's saying. Look at the words he spoke to the Lord. Gideon says, if you will deliver me, verse 36. Look at verse 39. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. This is a test of God's willingness to do what God has said he will do. It is not a test to see, did I hear you right? Maybe you meant this thing and I'm thinking the other thing, so I just want to be clear with you on this. No, that's not the test. The test is, tell me you'll do what you told me you'll do. It's a doubt in God's trustworthiness, fundamentally. And he says, I need you to pass this test for me. And he, he conceives this test. It's easy to see, right? A woolen fleece, big fluffy fleece, puts it out overnight on top of an open area where at night you'd normally expect it's either going to get wet or not, depending on what the dew is, is doing that night. But he asks for a supernatural result. Only one thing dry, everything else wet. One thing wet, everything else dry. It's supernatural. It's not going to happen unless God does a miracle. And then the Lord grants the miracle. And then the next morning, Gideon clearly sees the result. I mean, you can't miss it when you're doing this and you're filling up bowls of water. There's no doubt, right? And then he asks for the same thing again, opposite condition. Either way, it's a miracle, and once more, the Lord grants it. Now, sometimes when people remember Gideon's actions here, they'll actually cite all of this testing as an example of faith. I've heard it talked about in that way. But friends, in the context, you cannot come to that conclusion. The context makes very clear this is actually an example of the opposite of faith. Gideon is a weak man. Gideon is a man who reflects the spiritual weaknesses of the society from which he comes. He is not accustomed to hearing the Lord. If you are accustomed to hearing the Lord, you don't ask him to prove his faithfulness to his own word. If you are accustomed to the Lord of Scripture, then you don't have doubts concerning his power. You don't have doubts concerning his abilities. Gideon asked for a sign here, even though the Spirit of the Lord has delivered clear instructions to him. And he doubts that the Lord will go through with what he said. To be fair to Gideon, this is a man who is trying to obey. And that is notable. That is, that is commendable. He's trying to obey. But to quote the esteemed philosopher Yoda, there is no try. There is only do. Right? There is no value, there is no credit given for having positive intentions. You either believe in what the Lord says, and then the test is, do you do it? Or you don't. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot stand on this thought that I want to do the right thing, and I do trust the Lord, but I need a fleece. That's incompatible thought. In the end, his hesitation and his inability to act in confidence, having heard from the Lord, is a testimony against him. Friends, we may not have in our own experience the kind of direct revelation that God gave at Gideon, but we have something far better. When I've taught on the Moses example of Moses standing there with a burning bush and receiving God's commission to move forward, some people will often say to me, you know, I wish I could get what God gave Moses. I wish I could have the burning bush because then I'd know so conclusively what God wants me to do. And because I don't have that, I'm always in doubt. Friends, if you went back in time to Moses and you offered him this deal, you said, Moses, you can have a burning bush once every 40 years, which is about the interval that he typically heard from God. Or you can have the full and complete revelation of God available to you every day that you live. Do you know what Moses would choose? I'm almost certain. In fact, I am certain. He would say, well, why would I want one experience every 40 years? Why wouldn't I want the full counsel of God at all times? 
This is a more powerful revelation of God than anything he offered to the Old Testament saints. That's according to Hebrews chapter one. And yet so many of us have so little experience listening to this, it would seem maybe not so much this room, but certainly in some places. Christians are so inexperienced in listening to this and they stumble through life without the guidance that it offers. And they're wondering, why can't I hear from God? And when they do hear in some sense, they're unsure what they're hearing. The solution, friends, is to be in this regularly through prayer and study and communion with the saints. And in that experience, become confident in the Lord's ability to speak and in his power to deal with the situations of our life and to know better what is right for us than even we ourselves might know. We'll come back into Gideon next week. Consider for all that God uses Gideon to do. It's in spite of his failure to understand and have trust in God, not as a result of his tests and his weakness. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you, Father, for a reminder that our, our study of your word and our confidence in your faithfulness is the bedrock on which we walk as Christians. And that when we have sought for signs, wonders, and tests of you, Father, it's been an indication of our weakness, not our strength. I pray, Father, you forgive those times when they've happened and encourage us forward in greater and greater walks of faith according to your spirit. And let us, Father, be an example to the world in how we live it out. Give us courage to do that at all times. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.